You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. There is a bronze statue atop a plinth in London's Trafalgar Square. It stands to the southeast of the much more well-known Nelson's Column, but it is to this lesser-known bronze figure that my uncle, Nick Donoghue, tips his hat whenever he is in London. For without Major General Sir Henry Havelock, it is possible that neither my uncle nor I would exist. Without Sir Henry, my great-grandfather may not have been rescued from the siege of the British residency in the Indian city of Lucknow in 1857. My knowledge of the siege of Lucknow and the history of the British in India was less than scant. I knew there was some family connection and I knew my uncle, the family historian, had a story about the general on the plinth in Trafalgar Square. But to be honest, I never gave it much thought. Until that is, I read Amar and the Silk-Winged Pigeons by Jocelyn Cullity. Her eloquently beautiful work of historic fiction explores the events that led up to the siege and of the British annexation of the Indian kingdom of Awad as seen through the eyes of a female bodyguard to its king. The book is so thoroughly researched, such a work of sensory transportation, that it was like a golden key unlocking the gates of my own ancestral history. This month, Jocelyn's sequel to Amar and the Silkwing Pigeons was published by Canada's Inanna Publications. Her new book, The Envy of Paradise, picks up just a few months after the British siege and continues the fascinating story of the last king in India, Wajid Ali Shah, and his wife, Begam Hazrat Mahal, who became the defiant leader of the kingdom's rebel troops. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, author Jocelyn Collisey. Welcome back. Thank you, Diana, for having me. In case our avid listener in Newport, Wales, is tuned in online, I would like to start our chat today by wishing my uncle, the esteemed historian Nick Donoghue, a very happy upcoming birthday on December the 4th. And happy birthday, Nick. It's so wonderful to think of you listening. (laughs) It is. Jocelyn, this particular period of Anglo-Indian history is so under-remembered, probably totally unknown to most Americans, and I suspect not even well-remembered even in modern-day Lucknow. And I say this because I have a friend in Colombia from Lucknow who didn't know a huge amount about Wajid Ali Shah. So what makes you keep coming back? Well, the London historian Rosie Llewellyn-Jones wrote an amazing book on this last King of India. And reading that, I was just very much taken with the fact that, as she has so clearly pointed out, he was erased by history. And so what had started me off writing Amma and the Silkwing Pigeons was the fact that Begum Hazrat Mahal was a woman who was very much erased in history. She appeared in none of the military British textbooks, a very, very small small 
um, details about, little detail about her. And so it was after I finished Ama that a student gave me Rosie's book, The Last King in India, which had just been written. And I realized that her counterpart had also been very much deliberately erased by the English right up until his death, where he they got rid of absolutely everything about him just to try to erase him from not only the history books, but from the, the sort of minds of Indians in India. And so that really got me going on the sequel. And certainly in England, what little we do learn about the British history in India is this is called the Indian Mutiny. That's right. Rather than, as the Indians say, the first war of Indian independence. Yes. And they're still called, the Indians are still called the rebels. You know, that's a very English point of view. Mm -hmm. um, Instead of the Indians who were resisting English or foreign rule. So taking that different point of view is very important. There were other freedom fighters. I read about another woman, Rani Lakshmi Bai, who was just 200 miles away from Lucknow who mm-hmm. did make it into the history books, maybe mm-hmm. because she died in battle. She fought with her troops and she died, whereas Begam Hazrat Mahal uh, organized a different kind of defiance and did survive and did escape ultimately out of the country. Yes, and so that is true, that there are other women who did make it into the history books. It's funny why she didn't, and I've talked to Rosie Llewellyn-Jones, the historian, about this, and she was part African as well. You know, why she didn't actually stay in the English books was a matter, I think, of uh, the necessity to celebrate the English victory in Lucknow after two years of really not winning. But the Indians also, she was from the city community, and that's a community that the English really sort of destroyed after Queen Victoria took over. And so I think that her history just went the same way as the whole community has gone. There's just not a lot known by other Indians about the city community. But yeah, it's a question. So you wrote Amar on the Silkwing Pigeons, and that delved deep into the history of the actual siege of Lucknow and the British residency and what was going on, but from the Indian point of view. What made you want to go back and scratch that itch a bit more and, and explore more about these characters? Well, Amar, uh, that book ends on a very sad note. It ends on the English coming back in and recapturing the city. And I always felt that the fact that she had gone on and survived was really a victorious note that I wanted to continue to look at and think about. And so she and Wajid Ali Shah, both of them were survivors. And I wanted to celebrate that. And so I didn't feel that the story that I had told was finished yet. And so that made me want to go straight back and do a sequel that continued their lives through to almost when they died. So let's back out a little bit for people who don't necessarily know the history of the British in India. Tell us a little bit what was happening in the Indian subcontinent in the early 1800s that led to this moment in time. So the English East India Company was a company that had military and political power in India and had had that since I believe it was the early 1700s uh, or maybe even the late 1600s. At any rate, slowly, slowly, they encroached upon different bits of land that seemed to them the most lucrative. And so they took over 
bits of India very slowly. And Awad was a kingdom that King Wajid Ali Shah was the king of. And they were very interested in Awad because it was really the granary, the seat of the arts in India. It was extremely rich. The Indians were constantly giving loans to the English East India Company to fund this or that back in England. And they wanted that land. They wanted everything. They wanted the kingdom. And so they took over. They were they just announced that they were annexing it like they'd announced in other places that they were just annexing bits of India. And um, so they announced in 1856 that they were annexing the kingdom. And moreover, they were robbing King Wajid Ali Shah of his throne. He left to go to Calcutta to protest through English channels. He was very dignified. And his mother left um, to go to London to protest with Queen Victoria, parent to parent, to have her son get his kingdom back. And she was unsuccessful. And the English kept King Wajid Ali Shah captive in Calcutta for two years. So this was sort of the background. It was another annexation by the by the English. But, you know, what, again, isn't really sort of stated or, or talked about a lot in the military English history books is the fact that the Indians were A, shocked that their kingdom could just be taken over. B, that they would just take away their king was was awful. They they loved him very much. He was he was beloved. And so the fact that he was suddenly absent and they had no idea what had happened to him was huge. And then the third thing that started the siege was the fact that the English really had no understanding of the relationships between people in India, period, I would say. But the Talakdars were village landowners and the villagers, they had this really complex relationship. The villagers paid the Talakdars for land, but the Talakdars also helped the villagers uh, with in times of calamity, if there was a crop failure, they helped them with weddings and deaths. Well, as soon as the English took over, they said, well, you'll just give your money not to the Talakdors, you'll give your money to us in the form of taxes. And they weren't there to help with crop calamities or taxes or deaths. So all the villagers saw was this other entity come in and just ask for an exorbitant amount of money once a year that they could hardly pay for. And so those three things really, really sort of were underneath the resistance to the English. They wanted them just to leave and get out, and they refused to do so. And then, you know, this led to Begum Hazrat Mahal taking uh, over the leadership. And she was an ex-wife of Wajid Ali Shah by that time. And she did everything she could, but they did not have the same firepower, as one of the Indians said, as the English. And that was what eventually was the reason why the English were able to come back in with reinforcements from England, 58,000, I think it was, versus 36,000 Indians. Um, and they eventually won in in March 1858, where they took over the sit back over the city, and she had to flee for her life at that point. So tell us a little bit about, about Wajid Ali Shah as a man. What were some of his characteristics? Well, you see, he, the, to the English, he wasn't masculine enough. He was a poet. He was a passionate poet. He put on theatrical presentations, epic theatrical presentations. That lasted for days. Weeks. Weeks. weeks <laughs> and just beautiful, and spent a lot of money on these things. He spent a lot of money on all the different religions in 
Lucknow. So Hindu festivals were just as important as Muslim cultural events. So anyway, he this is why he was beloved there. But he did things like he made musicians administrative, he gave them administrative posts and this sort of thing, which the English just thought was ridiculous. So the English didn't think he was much of a man because of his bent on the arts, basically. But he also married over 300 women. And that to the English was just also awful or ridiculous and made him unethical. And so he was a complex person. The English, because they disapproved so much of him, and I tended to bend over backwards a bit the other way. I wanted to show all the things that were quite amazing about him. He was a very mild-mannered man. He was very graceful. He was dignified. And they, I mean, they mocked him all the time. They mocked him for starting a little Lucknow in Calcutta when he had nothing else he could possibly do because they'd take over his real city. But he had been um, sexually abused as a young boy for two years by a nursemaid. And this obviously really impacted him for his whole life. And after she was found out and fired, another nursemaid abused him. And that time, I think he took her as a lover. By then, he would have been perhaps 10 or 11 years old. Um, But clearly, as Rosie writes, this led to a certain sexual addiction and a very bizarre, not good relationship with women, um, where he was constantly marrying another one and trying to satiate himself sexually with yet the next bride. So that was very sad. And, And what is clear in his own writing is that he had PTSD from this. So he was constantly, he had all the classic signs of it. And I tried to show that in the book and highlight it because it really, I think, you know, somebody who is mentally suffering still, it had a lot to do with some of his reactions. Whereas the English, you know, they they didn't know anything about this. They just saw him as a, a weirdo, I think. Where did that information come from? What What documents are available about that? He wrote it. And so I tried to include in the book as much of Rosie's research into primary documents and into his poetry that showed where he describes these things that happened to him and how I've put in the book, there's a quote about the fact that he wished he'd had the eternal spring of youth. I'm not quoting that correctly, but, you know, instead it became a wilderness to him. And this obviously was directly related to the fact that he had been sexually abused. So, yeah, she is amazing because she has done this digging into many, many primary documents. Uh, The picture on the front of the book of Begum Hazrat Mahal was a picture she found. She was asked to go into Windsor Castle and look at all the loot that the English had found from that time and taken and presented to Queen Victoria. And she was asked to go and identify it. And that's when she saw the portrait of Begum Hazrat Mahal, the only one we know of that exists. And that's when she could confirm her own theory that Begum Hazrat Mahal was half African. And so that was, or East African. She was probably from Eritrea or Ethiopia. For the sake of the fiction in the book, I'm, uh, she's from Ethiopia, but we don't really know which country she was from. Tell us a little about her. What's her background? How did she make it from basically being a poor student in a dancing school to becoming the second wife? So she had, her father was a slave from, again, Eritrea or Ethiopia, and her mother was his mistress, and they sold her to the palace 
and there's a lot a sort of mockery of that, you know, but you have to remember her parents were terribly poor and this was a big step up to be able to train with courtesans in the high culture of the whole of India at that time, you know, to learn to dance and to learn to sing under the king's tutelage. It was amazing. And of course, he ended up marrying many of these women who were training to be dancers and singers, and she was one of them. And so they were married not for very long. Um, They had one son, Burgess Cotter, and uh, his mother. So she was very happily, it seemed, ensconced with him. But his mother decided that his mother hated the fact that he was marrying all these women. And he, she decided that six or seven of them, she told him that six or seven of them were really not good for him, that they were going to cause the death of his children because, and they, she said she had a snake on her neck. And she had no snake on her neck. It was all false information. But he divorced her on the spot for this, really because to please his mother. I think it's clear that that's the case. Um, and Rosie suspects that his mother chose her possibly because she was of a darker skin color, which is very sad. The color, uh, skin color culture meant nothing to Wajid Ali Shah. He married across cultures. He married all sorts of women. And I forget when I read the books and read about him that really this is a man in his 20s. This is not a king. Maybe we think of a king as an yes. old person. He's a young guy. No, he was in his 30s when he was left. In 1856, he, I think he was about 32. He was only about 58 when he died. Right. So Bagam Hazrat Mahal played this huge role in the resistance to the British, but then see, she largely vanished from history until relatively recently. So give us a little bit of a praise about what happened to her without giving the book away. What happened to her after the British returned and she fled? Well, they had, they had wanted to bribe her to give herself up. They want, it was very important to, to them that she surrender. She was the only one that did not surrender. There's much less known, much less documented about what happened after yeah, 1858 when the English came back in. So I had to rely on a lot of very small anecdotes about or, you know, witnesses who'd seen her bedraggled with her starving animals on the road here or, you know, in a similar situation somewhere else. Her counterproclamation gives us her voice because she's got such a strong voice. And in that counterproclamation, we really understand what was at stake for the Indians, why they were not giving up. And the counterproclamation was to the proclamation of Queen Victoria in November 1858 when Queen, Queen Victoria said, yes, we're taking over the whole of India and the East India Company no longer is going to do that. The crown of England is going to, or Britain is going to be a, and we are going to forgive you all for your sins, basically, is what she said. And a lot of the Indians who had stayed with Begum Hazrat Mahal and who others who fought on were, you know, found this unbelievably sort of well, the hypocrisy in the whole thing. And, and there were a lot of English who were going out into the countryside, not forgiving, still killing Indians, because who was loyal, who was not, became the question for many years after the siege. Who had, who had participated against the English and who had not? So she was one of these fighters out in the countryside, and she had thousands of people to support her still with her. And she fought and fought and fought. And the English pushed, you know, the Indians further and further north. And 
And then it's no secret, she died in Nepal. She ended up taking refuge there. Um, but they had asked her again. So she never, she, again, she, she never surrendered to the English. She was the only one. Would you read a little passage of the book for us? This is from the beginning of chapter one. It's in the voice of Hazrat Mahal. It is March 1858, and she and her followers are just outside Lucknow. Late night, and we are reassembling the Awad force at Musabag, a royal country home three miles west of Lucknow. Two days ago, we were compelled to leave the city because of incoming Englishmen. We can hear their gaiety in the far distance now, their joyous voices wrenching us as we imagine them opening doors, their footsteps echoing, touching the things that are ours. The Gomti River lies like a ribbon on one side of Musabag. A spirit of sadness moves upon its waters. On the other side of the country house, in its wild garden, hundreds in the Awad force stand guard, waiting for more of our scattered troops to find us. Our men beyond the garden watch too, for English soldiers who might come up the brick road. So far, it's been our good luck that only our own scattered forces have found us, traveling from Lucknow down the road strewn with debris, almost impassable that leads from the city's palaces directly to Musabag. In the garden, murmurs between the men stir the doves in the mango trees. The soldiers quiet down and peer into the darkness, listening hard to the night sounds. Thousands of Englishmen have poured into Lucknow, and a group like that could kill us all. Raja Jailal Singh runs up the stairs to the rooftop pavilion where I am alone with the night breeze. Dressed in a coat fastened with silver studs, Jailal has a sharp, intelligent face. He carries a rose-colored lantern that sways in his hand, and in his other hand he holds something that I can't make out. Raja Jailal Singh has worked with me since the start of the English annexation of Lucknow two years ago. We are united in our efforts to oust the foreigners from our home. Huzur, a letter from the English commander, he says, and bows his head. He holds out an envelope with a wax seal. Inside, a pale sheet of damp paper, a sturdy scroll in Persian, my name at the top, Begum Hazrat Mahal. Please read it to me. I hand the letter back to Jailal. He takes it and reads. Begum Hazrat Mahal, the letter begins. If you give up now, if you give up your fight against English rule, you'll be permitted to surrender with honor. I take the letter again and study it, a letter written while the English commander evidently turns a blind eye to his soldiers who ransack our palaces, who cut up gold-embroidered clothes and smash painted glass and ancient portraits, who pocket gold coins and sparkling diamonds, while orange fires consume our diaries and records, our royal library books and banknotes. The commander turns a blind eye to his men who drink wine stolen from shopkeepers, the men who wipe their mouths on women's scarves. I look at Jailal. Permission to surrender with honour, I say. More discourtesy. And there is so much discourtesy through the whole story of the British in India, the lies that we told. It's really a very shameful part of our colonial history, but then I guess a lot of our colonial history is quite shameful. shameful. <laughs> Quickly before we end, in reality, Wajid Ali Shah and Begum Hazrat Mahal had been long divorced by the time of the British siege, and there honestly doesn't seem to be much love lost between them. Mm-hmm. Wajid Ali Shah, when he was released from his imprisonment in Calcutta, he replied to Lord Canning, who was his erstwhile jailer, that he had always been the servant and well-wisher of the British government, and that he dismissed both Hazrat Mahal and her son, their son, Birgis Karar. You seem to, your narrative choice is to kind of make them seem more in love with each other still. Tell me about that. 
Well, you know, I wondered about what he said, and I could not... It really was a sticking point with me when I was developing his character and trying to think, you know, why would he have said these things? He said all sorts of things like this right when they were releasing him. And why wouldn't he have been a more cross with what had happened to him? And B, why was he so... He had never been for the uprising, even though the uprising was really all about him, about his downfall and in support of him. He did not think it was the right thing to do. So that is number one. But number two, when Rosie said to me, well, how do you know what he was thinking? You know, he had, there were certain things he had to say, and he was smart enough to say, given his situation with the English, who were now the ones in power in India. So she really made me understand that just because he had said certain things formally written down, we don't really know, you know, what it was exactly he was thinking, and we don't know how much he knew, you know, what about what was going on. He said he really didn't know anything, but how much did he really know? Those are questions still out there. So I just tried to find connections that had been there between them um, that were important, I think, to the story of those two characters. Do you feel like you've finished scratching the itch of this time period now? Because the next phase and his new life in this kind of little mini kingdom he creates in Calcutta called Garden Reach. I mean, that's a fascinating It is. I hadn't even too. thought of that, Diana, to be honest. <laughs> it's true. It is fascinating. Oh, I definitely have to put a request in for that next <laughs> book, please. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. It's always a delight to talk to you. My guest today has been Jocelyn Cullity. Her latest book, The Envy of Paradise, was published this month by Anana Publications and is available at local bookstores. Hope to see you again soon, Jocelyn. Thank you, Diana. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, and after a short break, we'll be finding out more about the upcoming Masters exhibit at Sega Browdis Gallery with Gallery Director Hannah Reeves. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. The abstract expressionist art movement in the 1940s and 50s was at best chauvinistic and at worst misogynistic. It was a movement unequivocally dominated by men. Women who were exploring abstract expressionism in their work were largely sidelined, sometimes allowed to be part of the men's exclusive clubs, but more than likely with the role of cooking for their male counterparts or assigned to taking membership fees. The sculptor Leela Katzen recalled that Hans Hoffmann, one of the fathers of the movement, and a leading educator of that era gave a toast to art at a dinner party declaring that only the men have the wings. One New York gallery owner of the time, Samuel Coots, who was influential in deciding whose art was going to be mainstream, pronounced that there would be no women artists in his gallery. Of course, the art world, like theatre, classical music and literature, has a long history of pushing women to the margins. So it is extra impressive that there were women who persisted. Indeed, there were many female abstract expressionist painters who were not only producing works every bit as rich and nuanced as the men, but who were also a primary influence for some of the male artists who would go on to become giants of 20th century art. This year, the Masters exhibit at Sega Browdis Gallery will feature 10 abstract expressionist painters, but the main focus will be on Mary Abbott, an artist who largely eschewed seeking credit for her influence or being heralded for her accomplishments in favour of what was of the highest importance to her, simply making art. And there is no one better placed to fill us in on the life and times of Mary Abbott and the other Abex painters who will grace the walls of the Sega Browdis Gallery this December, but the gallery's director and curator, Hannah Reeves. Welcome back to the show, Hannah. Hi, thanks for having me. So did I give a fair assessment of abstract expressionist 
era in saying that it was highly chauvinistic. Well, luckily for me, I didn't have to live and paint through it, but I, that sounds pretty accurate to me based on what I've read. Yeah. So um, maybe we should start by having you define what exactly is abstract expressionism. Well, I think a lot of the artists painting at the time probably wouldn't have called themselves abstract expressionists. And so that's something that we can, it's a term that we can apply or an umbrella um, that we can apply retrospectively. But the important piece is the expressive piece. So abstraction had existed for a long time and there are different forms of abstraction. So there is abstraction of something that is still representational, a la Picasso and Cubism, where there's a figure in there, but you have to look a little harder. It feels a little bit rearranged. Um, And so that's legitimately, you know, abstraction and some of the earliest. And then there was early non-objective abstraction with a geometric focus and the idea that the artist has the right to pursue formal elements instead of just trying to recreate something that exists in nature. But the abstract expressionist painters pushed even beyond that notion of, um, which you know was challenging to people through the 20th century and the end of the 19th century, the removal of subject matter, that's very challenging. Um, pushing past that and adding this layer of expression and, and basically saying with their work, I'm going to emote onto the canvas and I think that you, my viewer, will be able to take some sense of that away because there's some intrinsic note of expression housed in something that is made in an active and emotive state. That was new. So back in 2017, Sega Browder's Masters exhibit focused exclusively on women of surrealism and abstraction, not abex particularly. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, the Denver Art Museum curated an exhibition of women of abstract expressionism, which included two of the artists you have in this year's show, Mary Abbott and Pearl Fine. Do you have a sense of what it was like to be a female abex painter in the 1940s and 50s? Well, you know, you can tell from some of the photography that we have of the women who did get enough acclaim to at least have biographers, you know, by now. So we can we can read about Mary Abbott, we can read about Pearl Fine and Vivian Springford and Michael Corn West. And one little clue that we have um, is that they're all quite beautiful. So that's interesting. So you know that I, I think what that means is there are still probably quite a few names who are sidelined that there it takes a certain level of privilege there all of these women also are white women you know so there is a piece in which they're not the most privileged like with the most heard voices in their culture but they do still have some modicum of privilege that even gets them to the recognition that they have. Um, so I think for these painters that we're talking about, that is a piece, that privilege is a piece. Like they had the time and the space and the luxury to paint, which is important to remember because it took a lot of persistence on the part of these women, and they really faced a lot of sexism and um, a lot of challenge. Um, but at the same time, they, they did have this sort of the luxury to paint. And uh, Mary Abbott painted for seven decades as her career. So this is the sixth year for the Masters exhibit, and it features 10 artists in total. But I know you're wanting to kind of center the exhibition around the works of Mary Abbott, who just died this past August, aged mm-hmm. 98. 
None of the people you're exhibiting this year achieved household name status, but together they tell a story. So what is the story of this year's Masters exhibit? Mm -hmm. Well, we're enjoying centering the show around this kind of one headliner for us, um, Mary Abbott, because we have this unique opportunity to bring a pretty great retrospective of her work. And I always, when I go to an exhibit, I always find it incredibly moving and fascinating to see decades of someone's work and dozens of paintings by one person in one space because you just get this sense of their story and any one painting then becomes yes it's its own has its own sense of emotion and expression and and meaning but it becomes kind of a point on a timeline and I always find that fascinating so I'm very excited to get to do that it's not just the snapshot that happens tightly in the 40s and 50s although a lot of the major pieces and the advent of abstract expressionism does happen then but this body of work that we have from Abbott spans from 1945 to 2003, actually. So I think you get this great sense of how her work developed and what abstraction meant to her over these decades and what it meant to persist and keep painting and keep learning and growing as an artist. And I think that is just going to be very beautiful on its own. Um, But because we're able to sort of tell the story over decades of the progression of the work of Mary Abbott, we've actually tried to provide some other points from the stories of these other nine artists that kind of deal in that same narrative piece. And so rather than saying, like, these are all works, you know, that happened between 1945 and 1955, and this is about abstract expressionism, which is actually what we did last year, we're saying, here are these people whose work progress and even you know we only have a couple of pieces by Fritz Bultmann or one really lovely piece by Arthur Osfer but this is a person who progressed from making representational work or maybe like regionalist murals through to some non-objective work and some abstraction through abex and then a lot of times to the, there's this other piece that we didn't hear last year when we were telling the story mostly of abex the other pieces and then here's how they developed their manner of abstraction through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and here's what it continued to grow into and a lot of times one artist will keep painting in an abstract and expressive way but it looks and is differently looks different is differently meaningful by the 1980s one important point that you ask us to remember is that no artist is defined simply by one movement and one era and this show talks to that does it can you talk a little bit about that this idea that you know you have this 70 year career and everybody says oh you're this yeah (laughs) I think it's such a funny thing to like feel yourself doing I have done it so many times at museums and then even in our own gallery when we did women of surrealism and abstraction we started out our research and even just our conversation talking about Leonor Feeney as a surrealist with a capital S and then you just you realize like this woman painted for almost 80 years and she was a contemporary painter. By the time she died in the late 90s, she was a very, very informed, practiced contemporary painter. So it doesn't make sense to think of that person as somebody who's trapped in the 1920s in her case. And yeah, there may be like a heyday of a movement or there may be like a very important moment in time where ideas coalesce, like especially in this case with Abex in New York, immediately post-World War II. But that doesn't 
freeze those artists in place, especially, well, and this, you know, Abex is a little complicated because Jackson Pollock does get kind of frozen in place when he passes away so young. So it's kind of like, then now he is forever that guy that age who makes that kind of painting. But the rest of these people kept painting for decades and kept developing their work. So I like just shifting the way that we talk about it just a little bit to remind people that these are human beings, and especially with Mary Abbott having just passed away this year and a lot of these artists living into the 21st century and painting into the 21st century. So how did you amass such a huge amount of Mary Abbott work for this retrospective? Well, we, just like we always do with the master's exhibit, we work with dealers all over the country. And so we know the person who represents the estate of Mary Abbott and actually was representing her work before she passed away for several decades and was a good friend of hers. And so bringing a collection of work is a matter of talking with that person. And so over different special exhibits, including the April special exhibits, putting those collections together, it is it's quite different than our monthly exhibits where we're working with living artists. They may be all over the world, but we're getting the work directly from the artist and we're creating a contract directly with that artist. And these are, it works for the special exhibits are things that we're bringing through dealers who've put a lot of time and research into gathering them up. And so it's a matter of finding and convincing the right person. <laughs> so so most of these do come from, um, from one uh, dealer and gallery. And then there are, um, there are a few pieces that actually are, sourced by Melissa Williams, who's right here in town, too, who's somebody that we work with. Tell us a little about Mary Abbott. Who was she as a painter? I think of her, like I always think of the word persistence, which I noticed you, I think you had it in a note. And I love that quality in an artist. So she seems persistent. But at the same time, she, you know, when you have the opportunity to look at a lot of her work at once or like in one session, you realize that she really didn't reinvent the wheel. And even in her own work, she really didn't do a lot of reiteration. And so we've had this this really fun privilege of looking at the estates of several of these mid-century artists now just over the years. Sometimes you see you know, you're seeing that you basically fry your brain looking at like 3,000 paintings in a row and kind of deciding, okay, if we're going to bring 60 to Columbia, you know. And that process has looked so different with other artists than it did with Mary Abbott. So a lot of times the work in an estate is coming kind of in like a stack that was stored somewhere and there might be a whole session's worth or a month's worth or a, a body of work's worth that is dealing with like the same ideas, the same media and the same veins, which a lot of artists we know, and like we, a lot of us do that, you know, you kind of work on one note for a while. And so those pieces that might have been sketches, some of them signed, do go into the estate and they become available, whereas they might not have been exhibited before, or the artist maybe took, edited, you know, one of those and it became like a larger painting. Looking through Abbott's work, even looking through stacks of unframed works on paper that have never been shown, you see a unique note in every piece. And you see these subtle palette shifts in every piece. And you see these these very subtle media changes, like there's a combination of oil paint, and in this 
painting, which the artist maybe has numbered 54, there's marker. And then in this very next painting, which the artist has numbered 55, like presumably the next thing she made in the studio, there's like similar palette and there's oil paint and then there's a mark made with charcoal. You know, so there's this variety that you see and she's always so attentive to like variety of mark making and a visual sense of texture, great balance to composition. And so you see those recurring and you start to recognize it. But every piece is so unique. I mean, it's just, it's really an experience to see a lot of her work in one place. And she was very influenced by nature and the natural world. So she'd been ill as a child. She'd been confined inside for a couple of years. And then, and she missed being outside. She missed playing in nature. And so nature has really dominated, I guess the colors have dominated Mm -hmm. her work. She ended up marrying a businessman and living between the Virgin Islands and Haiti, as well as in America. And again, the, Mm -hmm. the colors of the tropics and the jungle really influenced her work. Mm-hmm. So you, do you see that? Do you see those colors, those kind of natural colors come through in her work? Yeah, I do. And actually, I love, I read um, this piece of an interview with her where she says she calls herself simple for loving the color yellow. Did you read that? And the, read that? the person with her says, why would you say that? And she says, oh, yellow is just so easy. It's very simple. Now, green, people think that they see green all the time, but it's actually such complex color mixing happens in the variety of things that people think are green in nature. It's so complex and, and you know, robust and moody and yellow is just, you know, kind of like it's out of the tube, you know, and she was like annoyed with herself for loving yellow. But I love the way she talks about that. And clearly she's spending a lot of time like absorbing these greens and thinking about the greens. So whilst in the 1940s and 50s her male contemporaries were busy building their names and their egos, Mary worked more from the perspective that the ideas and practices they were all exploring were part of a common consciousness, that together they were part of a larger phenomenon. Talk a little about this philosophy of the collective and the hive mind and and maybe how that affected her career. Well, you know, a lot of the New York School of Abstract Expressionists ended up on Long Island by like the late 50s. A lot of them were neighbors in East Hampton by the end of the 50s. Actually, I think maybe five of the people on our roster this year were actually just kind of neighbors. Um, and so that geographical proximity, both when they were in New York, like on 8th and 9th Street, keeping their studios so nearby, and then once they sort of created this little mini colony in the Hamptons, it really seemed to feed this sense of... Um, mutual influence and you can see that even though people don't do a good job talking about how women influenced men because people always talk about oh of course de Kooning influences you know like it's people are so good at do you know in the, it's sorry diatribe but on the <laughs> plaque in the St. Louis Art Museum next to the beautiful big Frankenthaler in the very first sentence Jackson Pollock's name is uttered in a description of Helen Frankenthaler. It's like we do so, we do such a good job of thinking about you know the influence going that way. But but undeniably, people are absorbing things from each other, whether they even mean to or not. And we don't get as many. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's what artist residencies are about, and like studio situations in grad school. I guess that's my closest experience. It seems like maybe they're isn't as great a sense of the need for physical proximity just because we feel like we have access to each other all over the world all the time, which we do. 
but it's gotta mean something different when you're working with like the material and the materiality of the paint to be right in front of it or to share a studio space with someone. That's gotta make a difference. And talking about de Kooning, she was very close to de Kooning. And in fact, if you talk about de Kooning, you should say that really his work was influenced by her. So mm-hmm. Mary Abbott was influential on his work, maybe rather than vice versa, but I guess that doesn't get pointed out very often. Right, we just, yeah, it just doesn't get said that way. You know, probably it went both ways. Like people are around each other. It happens to us now and we, even with less access to each other just like seeing the work of people I think you know you'll hear somebody say oh that reminds me of this and you're like damn it I had seen that I guess I, okay you know there's like a different um there's a different tone to it now though where it's like you maybe don't want to be or it's like taboo to have been influenced but I think they embraced it right like they it meant something that they were all creating this paradigm shift together and maybe it took all of those people we kind of talked about that last year with the show that was really about abstract expressionism um maybe it sort of created some safety in an otherwise kind of treacherous you know step outside of the normal bounds of saleable art as I read through the various biographies of the artists you have in the show, several times I came across reference to what is described as an anti-school that was founded in 1948 and was called, rather strangely, the subject of the artist school. Mary Abbott went there and another artist in the show, Fritz Bultmann, attended. And I wondered what more you could tell us about that and maybe how it affected Mary's philosophy of art. Do you know about the, the subject you of the know, artist school? I don't. I, I have come across the name of it and that's something that I, I promise I will do more research showtime before I open the exhibit but I've been curious too and I don't I don't know that much more about it do you have did you find some well it was it was only existed for a year and then they went out of business they didn't have any money they were the idea was to promote avant-garde art especially abstract expressionism the founders were William Badziotis, I can't pronounce his name, David Hare, Robert Motherwell, Barnett Newman, and Mark Rothko. So they had this this little school. They had lectures that were open to the public. They had big speakers that came in. They were well attended, but they just didn't really make any money. So it folded in the spring of 1949, and it gave rise to something called the club, which was another avant-garde collective or gathering point. And what I read about Mary Abbott was that it was there that she said she learned to draw imagination, this idea of Uh, I'm not painting flowers, I'm painting flowering, or as another of the artists uh, in the show said, I think it was Sam Feinstein said, we don't paint flowers, we paint flowering. So this idea of emoting onto the page the yeah, no, experience of nature in that description <laughs> yeah. oh that's really wonderful it also makes me think about black mountain college and sort of an america that was ripe for some experimental thinking about art that then gave rise to not just action painting but performance art and happenings and fluxus and um or versions of it in right. the u.s and basically like bringing activity and then a sense of time into art so the club was very much male-dominated, but they did say Elaine de Kooning was a member, Mary Abbott, Pearl Fine was a member, mm-hmm. but Mary Abbott's job was to take the membership fees. I didn't actually know that. That's <laughs> like infuriating, right. but not surprised. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about maybe Pearl Fine. Of her work, she said, my paintings deal not in definition, but rather with the art of evocation and suggestion. Mm -hmm. And which I guess is true, really, of all abstract expressionism, Mm -hmm. would you say? Yeah, yeah, she fits fits right in, in that way. What do we know about her? You know, when I think about her work and the body of work that we looked through and what we're able to bring I think about it being more shape based and so when you when you kind of boil down to the formal elements of line shape color value and texture 
shape is like essential in Fine's work, which gives it kind of a distinctive feel among the group of, you know, the work of all of her peers, um, which is kind of interesting. And then I think we don't often think of shape as expressive. Like line can be expressive. It's real easy to think about a scribbly line and like the, which you hate. I do hate <laughs> scribbly lines. It's true. And, um, you know, the, the, implication of activity of like what your arm had to do to scribble something big or what your fingers had to do to scribble something small like there's an implied activity in line but shape it's like a little bit harder to think about how you know expression is attached uh for me and yet when you see the collages of profile and these compositions of shapes you do you do get a sense of movement and of mood definitely yet surely we see the world more in shapes than in lines yeah, and a lot of artists work very shape-based now, and especially like in representational work, we're actually taught to find the shapes first, like find the big shapes, find the values, line is last, you know, you don't start drawing eyelashes before you have like the shadows of the skull, you know? So in some ways it's maybe more natural, but we got very line happy there for a while. Um, so her, I feel like her work is kind of a counterpoint to all of the expressive line and also just the impasto and, and like the focus on paint of this era where we're mostly focused um, because she's doing some collage and the work is flatter and more shape-based, but it's still really moody and expressive. Now, Pearl had the advantage of she had a, one of her sponsors was Baroness Hilla Ribet, who uh-huh. was the founder of the Guggenheim Museum. Did she have the same kind of obscurity as Mary Abbott or was Pearl Fine more, more available to people? Well, it made a big difference to be in the Guggenheim collection and Hilla Ribet was just an enormous influence on, you know, what would become kind of the museum world, you know, was a, Rebe was kind of a private curator for Solomon Guggenheim before the Guggenheim Foundation was even formed and was just so instrumental in putting together the start of that collection. And this is right in an era when a lot of those museums were forming. So she's connected, this curator is connected with all of the collectors, and it matters if she knows your name. And she's the reason why Kandinsky became famous in the United States. She's the reason why Jackson Pollock became famous, you know. So for Fine to have been recognized, especially as, and like, remarkably, though Rebay was a woman, she wasn't a great champion of women. <laughs> she mostly championed the men around her. And she was a painter, too. She didn't even push her own painting she you know so i mean that's kind of just she comes from a previous generation i think than the the avex painters but for fine to have been recognized and brought into the fold by rebay i think made a huge difference for her during another of the artists that i'm curious about that you have on the list is fritz bultman he ran in the same avant-garde circles as abbott fine motherwell rothko de kooning but despite being a man he never really made it into that stratospheric echelon of rothko and pollock etc Mm -hmm. what's his story you know i think about boltman and kind of comparably to robert natkin there are a few of these men and actually even um john weimer who's from missouri who's part of this exhibit um they have kind of related stories where they're pursuing life as an artist and and they sort of like take the 
there's like the first step up what seems like it's going to be a big staircase and it's the same step as Pollock and Klein and Motherwell and Rothko and a lot of them were in the same place at the same time a lot of them studied with Hans Hoffman and kind of had so they had those first steps together and so you expect them all to have this rise together and they just don't so I think some of them just pursued careers like along a lot of these people on the roster actually more than half of the people on the roster were professors as well and so they just kind of pursued a career and they quietly but persistently spread the ideas it's not I don't know it's not as uh, shiny <laughs> as um, being in like the top gallery and kind of having all the attention of the promoters but it does seem like it comes down to kind of who's promoting you at some point maybe I mean Hans Hoffman had said of Bultmann that he considered him the most brilliant of all the many students I have had he must be considered today the most outstanding the most sincere and the most disciplined young artist of the entire generation and this in the international sense so it seems like he had these great promoters he was incredibly talented maybe he just didn't have the same ego is it down oh, that's, to ego? I, that's a thought. Yeah, no, that's an idea. <laughs> Maybe it takes a combination of ego and like a really good promoter and marketing team. <laughs> so moving away from the East Coast, you mentioned John Wehmer and Melissa Williams, who's here mm-hmm. locally in town. And he was a St. Louis-based artist. And the reemergence of his early work is really thanks to Melissa Williams. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about Wehmer and his story. I mean, he's another one of those people who's just kind of willing to be quietly brilliant and maybe it is a lack of ego and I haven't met him yet I hope to um, in the coming few weeks I hope that that works out because he's, he's still living in St. Louis so like many of these artists and like many of the men of his era served in World War II he had begun um, some study at Washington University beforehand came back and was able to resume study in art and that's the story of like, half you know again of, of these folks but he really found kind of an artistic home and a community at Washington University. And, you know, in the 50s, St. Louis was, there was a hub there that people don't quite realize. The St. Louis Art Museum um, was a major institution and was able to support artists through exhibitions and awards and even just like the presence, you know, within an art community. Um, Washington University was an incredible program that really drew faculty and students and so there was a sense of community there and there were major collectors in St. Louis who were putting their money where their mouth was so there really was this hub and he was right in the middle of it so he he was you know really able to be a successful painter if not you know an east coast glossy Jackson Pollock figure and so he taught for years and he painted for decades and he largely stored his paintings away until Melissa convinced him to bring me back out into the light a few years ago. <laughs> and so. organize a show and, mm-hmm. and he, he was he was back mm-hmm. which is exciting. And he's 92 now I think. Mm-hmm. So you're hoping he'll come down for the I don't know opening. if he'll be able to come. I would love it. I hope that I get to meet him at some point. I presumably just quickly before we end you have various education components of this year's exhibit. Mm-hmm. What have you got coming up? Well, I have for educators in town, this is a little bit new, but I have education days on two days in December. And so it's um, December 13th and then December 17th. Um, I'm devoting the days to classroom tours. So if you think you might want to schedule a field trip, those are the days that are options. We can arrange the times. We can do guided tours of any length. And so you can email me, hannah at com, and we can set up educational visits. Kind of excited to consolidate 
validate those and really more widely invite people to do those. We have a guided tour on Slow Art Saturday on December 7th. Thank you. The tour will start at 11.30 a.m. We'll walk people through the exhibit and a number of other events surrounding the Master's Exhibit as well, which you can find on our website, sagerbroadestgallery.com. Thank you so much. My second that guest today has been Hannah Reeves, Director and Curator for the Sago Browdis Gallery. The sixth annual Master's Exhibit opens at Sago Browdis on the Friday the 6th of December and will stay on view through December the 28th. Thank you as always, Hannah. Thank you so much. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross, let's have a quick run through of the arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. With this week being dominated by Thanksgiving, uh, there is not a huge amount going on. The arts are relatively quiet, but before they start up with a vengeance again in early December. That said, Greenhouse Theatre Project's immersive art installation slash anti-breakout experience is on all weekend at Breakout Como. So imagine you find a room that has been sealed up for over 30 years and you get 50 minutes to go through someone's belongings to see if you can work out who might have lived there and what happened to them. Check viewing time availability at greenhousetp.org as there are multiple viewings tonight plus all day tomorrow and Sunday and tickets are $16. At William Woods University's main stage theatre, the Ken Ludwig comedy, Twas the Night Before Christmas, is on stage tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. At Hickman High School, their production of the musical comedy Guys and Dolls is on tonight and tomorrow at 7. At the Miller Performing Arts Centre in Jefferson City, the Little Theatre is performing Steel Magnolias tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. The Missouri Contemporary Ballet, at their studio on Orr Street, they have a choreographic installation this evening featuring brand new works created by the ballet. There are two shows tonight at 6 and 7pm and tickets are available at the door for $10 for adults. And at Café Berlin, R.A. Washington is performing a new solo show that combines his love of electronics, history and poetry. His show starts at 8 o'clock tonight. Tomorrow afternoon from 4.30 till 6.30, there is an opening reception at the Boone History and Culture Centre for a show of artworks by the members of Ashland's Mid-Missouri Arts Alliance. The art exhibit will be up through January the 26th. Americana blues jazz singer, songwriter from Nashville, Browninger, is on stage at the Fink Theatre in California at 7pm Saturday night. In Columbia, Orchard Fire play a Fleetwood Mac tribute concert at the Blue Note at 8.30 tomorrow night. And at Rose Music Hall, Western States and Don't Mind Dying are on stage and there's also an official John Galbraith trio CD release that all goes down at 9 p.m. Sunday afternoon, it's the annual KOPN Central Missouri Holiday Parade with the Mobile Funk Unit leading the throng of participants. The parade starts at the corner of College and Broadway at 3 o'clock before heading west along Broadway, turning south on 5th Street and coming to a halt at 5th and Locust. And at First Baptist Church at 4pm on Sunday afternoon, Columbia Youth Choirs perform a concert called True Colours. Monday evening, Kansas City-based songwriter Kelly Hunt will be playing her calfskin tenor banjo at Rose Music Hall with a little help from Justin Hickerson and Nina Lee Cherry. The evening starts at 7 and the Columbia Jazz Orchestra plays its regular monthly gig at Broadway Brewery starting at 8.30 on Monday night. Wednesday night you can get in some pre-turkey exercise with a Thanksgiving Eve Latin disco party at Rose Music Hall <clears throat> featuring La Movida, Los Desterados and DJ Pero Loco. Strut your stuff from 8pm and finally next Thursday there's just a national dose of mandated Thanksgiving. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. <laughs> <laughs>